Welcome, friends. Pour your favorite cup of tea, coffee, or cocoa, and settle in for a Sips from the Sip from the Utica Institute Museum. Sips from the Sip is all about sharing the history of little-known people and places in Mississippi. We're serving up truth, justice, with a dollop of sass. I'm your host, Jean Green. Today's episode is the first of a multi-part series of readings and discussion from the book, Black Man's Burden. William Henry Holtzclaw was born in 1874 and raised in rural Randolph County, Alabama, to sharecropping parents. The Tuskegee graduate founded the Utica Normal and Industrial Institute for the Training of Colored Young Men and Women in Utica, Mississippi, in 1903, making it the first little Tuskegee to be established in Mississippi. The Black Man's Burden, the autobiography of William Holtzclaw, published in 1915, made him one of the first black men to publish a book in Mississippi. The book begins with Holtzclaw's childhood in Alabama. Chapter 1. I have some recollection of the house in which I was born and of the great plantation which belonged in the days of slavery to one of those traditional southern planters about whom we have read so much. I have seen the windowless house in which I first saw the light, the light that scantily streamed through the cracks in the wall. It was a little cabin, 14 feet by 16 feet, made of split pine poles with only dirt for a floor. It was in this cabin near Roanoke, Randolph County, Alabama, that my mother was left alone one Saturday night. My father had gone away to secure food for her, and when he returned Sunday morning, I was there to greet him. My mother and I were completely alone at the time of my birth. I have always felt that I have an advantage over most men of my race in that I was born on a day of rest. It was the first piece of good fortune that came to me, and I want to be grateful for it. This was in the closing days of Reconstruction, when there were stirring times in nearly every part of the country. But of course, I do not remember much about what happened then. I recall, however, some things that occurred four or five years later, when although the South had been legally reconstructed, the law had not changed the sentiments of the people very much. I distinctly remember that there were no colored school teachers at that time, and in my own locality, there were no northern white teachers. The few colored schools that existed at all were taught by southern white men and women. Before I was old enough to attend school myself, I used to go along now and then with the others, and I remember that one of these southern white teachers took a great liking to me, and passing our house one day on his way home, predicted to my mother that I would someday be a lawyer. I did not know what that meant then, but I got the impression that it meant I was going to be something great, and I did not forget it. Almost as soon as the Negro pupils got as far as Baker, and certainly when they got as far as a basement in the old blueback speller, 
they were made assistant teachers. And in a short while, relieving the white teachers, they became the only teachers we had. When I was seven years old, there was not a white teacher in our community. The color teachers were doing pretty good work, but the best of them had advanced only about as far as the fourth grade. There is one thing, however, that they had learned to perfection, and that was the use of the rod. And of this kind of education, I got my full share every day. My great trouble was that if I got a whipping at school, I was likely to get another one when I reached home. This was not always the case, however. One year it had been agreed that I should study nothing but arithmetic. And before I had been in school many days, I had undoubtedly reached the limit of my teacher's ability in that branch. For several days, I had no lessons. At length, one day without warning, he jumped at me like a fierce tiger, and with a hickory switch, which he had previously roasted in the fire, he beat me to the floor and continued to flog me until some grown pupils interfered. When I started home that afternoon, I became exhausted and sat down on a log on the roadside from which I was not able to rise on account of the lacerated condition of my flesh. My father found me after dark and carried me home. That was the only time that I can now recall ever having seen my father very angry. He wanted to whip that school teacher, but my mother's advice prevailed, and I was sent back to school as soon as I could walk. Those early experiences made me vow that if I ever got to be a school teacher, I would not whip the little ones and let the big ones go free. My father, who, like my mother, had been a slave, was a young and inexperienced man when he married. My mother, however, had been married twice before, and she was the mother of three children. Her first marriage was performed in slavery time by the simple act of jumping back and forth over a broom in the presence of her master and mistress. In the course of time, as more children, including myself, came along, until there were six of us, my father found it very difficult to keep the wolf from the door. My mother helped him by cooking for the landlord's family while my father worked on the plantation. Our landlord, one of those southern planters now commonly referred to as a gentleman of the Old South, like many others of his class, had had his fortune consisting largely of slaves swept away by the ravages of the Civil War. The result was that although he had a large amount of land left, he was nevertheless a poor man. The agreement between him and father, which was nothing more than a verbal contract between them, provided that he was to furnish land, mules, feed, seed, in fact, everything but labor, and it further provided that he was to help do the work and receive as his share three-fourths of all that the land produced, while we were to receive the other one-fourth. Although he agreed to help, he seldom did any manual labor. He was in the fields every day, however, going from place to place among the various Negroes that were serving under contracts similar to ours. At one time, my father ventured, in the most modest way, to call his attention to the fact that he was doing no work. But he very kindly, yet firmly, 
explained that he was doing more work in a day without a tool in his hand than my father was doing in a month. He tried to make my father understand this. I do not know whether my father understood it or not, but I could not. We never prepared our land for cultivation, but simply planted the seeds on the hard ground in March and April and covered them with a turn plow. Then we cultivated the crop for two months. Naturally, the returns were small. When the crop was divided in the fall of the year, three loads of corn were thrown into the white man's crib and one into ours. But when it came to dividing the cotton, which was done up in bales weighing 500 pounds each and which sold for 17 cents a pound, every bale went to the white man. He was at great pains to explain to my father each year that we ate ours during the year. I remember how puzzled I used to be in trying to conceive how it was possible for people to eat a crop, especially cotton out of which cloth is made, before it was produced. In later years, however, and many times since then, I have seen whole crops eaten two or three years before they were planted. Our landlord furnished us food from his smokehouse from March to July and from September to December. This food consisted of cornmeal out of which we made corn pone by mixing it with water and salt and smoked sides of meat from hogs that we raised. All the rest of the time, we had to find something to do away from the plantation in order to keep supplied with bread and clothes, which were scanty enough. The land was poor and would hardly have produced enough to support all the people that lived on it, even if it had been under better cultivation. Each year, the landlord would run us, and he would charge from 25 to 200 percent for the advances according to the time of year. No wonder we ate our crops up. The method of obtaining food and provisions on this plantation was interesting. The landlord owned the store, one large room about 40 feet by 60 feet, which he kept well supplied with flour, meat, meal, and tobacco. This store was usually open only on Saturdays when all the Negroes from the plantation would come up and pass the day at the store, which was sort of a social center. Meantime, their rations for the following week were being issued. For an unmarried male laborer, the usual ration was a pound of meat, a peck of meal, three pounds of flour, and a plug of tobacco. I remember hearing the men complain very often that they were charged for rations that they did not get, and I remember that at one time a lawsuit arose between the landlord and a Negro on the plantation who could neither read nor write. When the trial came off at the store, the landlord presented his books to show that the Negro had obtained certain rations during the year. The Negro denied having received such rations, and as proof, he presented his book, which consisted of a stick, one yard long, trimmed in hexagon fashion, and filled with notches, each notch representing some purchase, and in some ingenious way, the time of the purchase. After the jury had examined the white man's books, they began an examination of the Negro stick, 
and the more he explained his way of keeping books, the more interested the jurors became. When the trial was over, the Negro won the case, the jurors having decided that he had kept his books properly and that a mistake had been made by the white bookkeeper. My mother cooked for the white folks, and her work being very exacting, she could not always get home at night. At such times, we children suffered an excruciating kind of pain, the pain of hunger. I can well remember how at night we would often cry for food until falling here and there on the floor, we would sob ourselves to sleep. Late at night, sometimes after midnight, mother would reach home with a large pan of pot liquor or more often a variety of scraps from the white folks' table. She might have brought more, but she was not the kind of cook that slipped things out of the back door. Waking us all, she would place the pan on the floor or on her knees, and gathering around, we would eat to our satisfaction. There was neither knife, fork, nor spoon, nothing but the pan. We used our hands and sometimes in our haste dived head foremost into the pan, very much as the pigs after swill. In the morning, when Mother had to return to her work, before we children awoke, she was accustomed to put the large pan on the dirt floor in the middle of the cabin where we could find it without difficulty. Sometimes, however, our pet pig would come in and find it first, and would be already helping himself before we could reach it. We never made any serious objection to dividing with him, and I do not recall that he showed any resentment upon dividing with us. One day, my brother and I were given a meal of pie crust, which my mother had brought from the white folks' table. As we were eating it, old Buck, the family dog who resembled an emaciated panther, stole one of the crusts. We loved old Buck, but we had to live. And so my brother lit unto him, and a royal battle took place over that crust. As my brother was losing ground, I joined in the struggle. We saved the crust, but not until both of us had been scratched and bitten. I do not know who needed the crust most, we or the dog, but those were the days of hardships. Very often, we would go two or three days at a time without prepared food but we usually found our way into the potato patches. And the chickens were not always safe where we passed, for my brother occasionally, by accident, would step on a little one, and of course we would then have to cook it as a matter of economy. I recall that in that section of Alabama where I lived, there is a kind of root called hog potato, which grows abundantly in the swamps and marshy places. I have never known it by any other name. I used to spend hours every day in the swamps about our house, wading in the slush above my knees, turning up the mud in search of those potatoes. After they were roasted, they had a taste like that of the white potato with which people in the northern states are familiar. By means of these potatoes, together with berries and other wild fruits, we were able to keep body and soul together during those dark days. As I now remember it, my father's continuous effort was to keep the wolf from the door. He presently quit the big plantation and spent a year working on the Western Railway of Alabama at Lacapoca in Lee County, about 50 miles from home.
There were no railroads or stagecoaches to carry him to and from his work, so it required two weeks to make the round trip, much of which lay through immense forests where a narrow footpath was the only passage. He would remain away from home three months at a time, working for the handsome sum of a dollar a day, out of which he boarded himself and furnished his working clothes. I remember how mother and we children would sit in our dark little cabin many nights looking for him to come at any moment, and sometimes it would be nearly a week after we would begin to look for him before he would come. I don't think we ever had a letter from him. We only knew that the three months were up and that it was time for him to come to us. He usually brought from 40 to $50 home, but by the time we paid out of that amount what we owed the white gentleman on whose place we still lived for the advances obtained of him in my father's absence, there would not be much left for us. The lack of food was not the only hardship we had to endure. We found it very difficult to find clothes and even shoes, which was very trying when the winters were cold. I never wore a pair of shoes until I was 15, and when I did begin to wear shoes, I never wore them until the weather was cold. In fact, I made it a rule never to put on my new shoes until Christmas morning, no matter how cold it was. Usually in the summertime, the only garment that we children wore was a simple shirt. These shirts were not always made of shirting, but were often of homespun, and when this material could not be had, a crocus sack, or something of the kind, was used instead. I remembered that the first suit of clothes I owned I paid for myself with the money I had made by splitting rails. It took me a good part of the fall season to split the 2,000 rails that were required to get my little suit but I succeeded in my undertaking with occasional help from my father in finishing the job. The fact that I bought this suit with my own labor made me think all the more of it. Although the census taker of 1880 classed my parents as illiterate, they had a very clear understanding of right and wrong. In their own way, they were moral teachers, and they knew how to make their lessons impressive. By no stretch of the imagination could either of them have been classed with what was known at that time as an ignorant Negro, though neither of them could read or write. One day, while I was alone in the white folks' kitchen, where I had accompanied my mother to her daily work, I spied a little round box on the shelf. It was a box of matches such as I have not seen in 20 years. Curious to see what a match head was like, I pinched one without removing it from the box. An explosion was heard, and the box was blown off the shelf to my consternation. With a switch, my mother began to administer to a rather tender part of my anatomy, the treatment with which it was already familiar, explaining all the while that I must learn to mind my own business. The white lady with whom I was a favorite interceded for me, saying that I should not be whipped for a little thing like that. It was most natural. I had reached the age of investigation. My mother desisted, shaking her head as she left the scene, saying she would investigate me, and from time to time, she did. 
So in matters of conduct, at least, whether large or small, I had the advantage of a loving but firm discipline. In such matters of conduct, or of morality, if you please, my mother was always teaching me some little lesson. I remember that at one time when I must have been five or six years old, I was sent up to the big house to borrow some meal from the white folks for supper. On my way back, while climbing over an old-fashioned rail fence, I discovered while pausing for a few minutes on the top rail a hen's nest full of eggs. The bait was tempting. I was hungry and wanted the eggs. I had never heard anybody saying anything about taking that which did not belong to you, but somehow I felt that it was wrong to take those eggs. I knew they belonged to the white lady up at the big house. After thinking the matter over for nearly a half hour, I decided to compromise for taking only a few of them, so I got as many as my little pocket would hold and carried them home. Sidling up to my mother in a rather sheepish fashion, I showed them to her and told her that I had found them, which was the truth. I remembered that my mother was amused, but she kept her face turned from me and proceeded to teach me another of those little lessons which stayed by me and supported me in after years. She told me it was wrong to steal from the white folks that white folks thought all Negroes would steal, and that we must show them that we would not. She said she knew I did not steal them, but that it would look that way, and that I must show that I did not by taking them right back to the white lady and giving them to her. That was a great task. After having spent an hour in going a distance of 300 yards, I reached the white lady with the eggs and told her that I had found them. I had always suspected that my mother had been there and had seen the white lady before my arrival. At least, that is the way it appears now as I look back on it. For the good lady gave me an old-fashioned lecture about stealing and told me that whenever I wanted anything she had, I should come up and ask for it. Then she gave me two of the eggs. I was quite young at that time, as I have said before, but I was not too young to learn and that lesson, and others like it, remained with me. Thank you for tuning in for Sips from the Sip. Joining me next time to discuss Chapter 1 will be Dr. Eldridge Henderson, CEO of Action Leadership Institute. Be sure to tune in for what I'm sure will be a lively discussion. The Utica Institute Museum is dedicated to expanding knowledge of the history of Utica Institute and its role in Southern Black education. This program is supported by donations from our listeners. If you enjoy learning about the history of William Holtz Law, the Utica Institute, and Mississippi, consider donating. To support Sips from the Sip and all the work of the Utica Institute Museum, visit uticainstitute.org slash donate. Until next time, this has been Jean Green coming to you from the heart of the SIP.